Good morning. Glad to be here with you guys this morning. My name is James. I'm on staff here. You guys might recognize me from church um, here often. Um, primarily responsible for leading the congregation in worship through song. Uh, but this morning I'm going to be preaching for you guys, and we're going to be in Colossians 3.16. So if you want to turn there now, if you don't have your Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you when you leave as our gift to you. As Jason was saying last week, choosing a passage of Scripture to preach on could be a bit overwhelming if you have the whole canon of Scripture to choose from. It's a little easier working into uh, a rhythm of working through a book of the Bible, which is what we normally do here, and you're assigned a passage and you have a context laid out for you. But, uh, but the process here is a little bit more daunting. How do, you, how do you choose it? You flip through the pages randomly and point to something, and that's what you go for. Um, <laughs> not advised, by the way. Um, but, uh, but so how did I settle on Colossians 3.16? There was a number of factors that led me to select this verse. Um, one, this passage deals directly with worship through song, as we shall unpack momentarily. And this is sort of my wheelhouse, sort of my background. I've been leading worship here at Crosspoint for the past six years. And prior to that, I served on a praise team at a church in California and that band for about nine years. And before that, I was playing music from the time I was about 10 with the goal of writing songs. That's why I started playing guitar, because I wanted to write songs, and that's, that's how you do it. You have to play an instrument. And it wasn't about becoming some virtuoso guitar player so much as it was I wanted to express myself through music in this way. And so it's, I don't know, I describe it as a love and a passion, but that doesn't really hit on it. It's not even like uh, I love it. I try to explain myself. There was an interview I saw a while back with Van Morrison, brown-eyed girl, Van Morrison, and uh, the girl asked him, why do you love to play music? And he said, it's not really about love for me, it's something that I have to do, and that really resonated with me. It's, if I'm honest, um, part of coming up here on a Sunday morning and playing music in front of everybody absolutely terrifies me. So I have these kind of dual personalities. I was explaining it to my wife and then in the back before prayer. It's like I have the one side of me, this creative, confident, carefree side who loves to get out there and, and create and show people it. And then I have this timid, conservative, terrified side that wants nothing to do with it. And, uh, and the, it seems like the creative side is always working behind the conservative side's back, unbeknownst to him. So usually I find this out, the conservative side in the shower or something, and it'll go something like this. This conversation will be like, uh, you know, creative me is all like, hey, by the way, I auditioned for a play and I got the part. And then conservative me is like, whoa, why did you audition for, uh, what, this is going to be horrible. Why did you do this? You have to get us out of this thing. And that's what it's like every time before I come up here and lead worship, just so you know. But somehow, by the grace of God, he has sustained me and allowed me to do this, and I'm grateful to be a part of doing that here. So since taking on this position, I've sought to continually grow technically, not just as a musician, as a singer, as a songwriter, and hopefully as a leader, but also to grow in my understanding of who God is and how that ties into this particular expression of worship, right? Because this is only one way to worship is through song. We often talk about that as if it were synonymous, but worship is so much more than that. I love this quote from Harold Best. It's from his book, Unceasing Worship, and I, I really think he hits the nail on the head here. He says, worship does not stop and start, despite our notions to the contrary. Once we place emphasis on specific times, places, and methods, we misunderstand worship's biblical meaning. Worship may ebb and flow, may take on various appearances, 
and may be unconscious or conscious, intense and ecstatic, or quiet and commonplace, but it is continuous. Worship is a continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of the chosen or choosing God, capital G, or God, lowercase g. We don't stop worshiping when Sunday ends. We go out of here and we continue to worship, though not always the capital G God, sometimes other things. I do, however, think there's something particularly special about worship through song. God designed it to be a unique expression of worship to him, and I love that about it. Part of digging into this passage, Colossians 3.16, is my own curiosity. Now, I've been aware of these verses for some time. I want to know about what God's word says about what he's called me to. And if all scripture is God-breathed, and it seems like a good place to start. The other reason I chose this verse is more, I guess, timeliness or a felt need. I, I have, since I have been leading worship here, gotten any number of questions about anything from how do I choose the songs to what does this lyric and this song mean to why don't we sing this song to comments about the arrangements. And so I thought this was a good opportunity to address some of these questions and show that our paradigm for worship at Crosspoint is not arbitrary, but rather derived from Scripture. And so Colossians 3.16 will sort of be our launching point for that discussion, hopefully answer some of those questions that, that maybe you have, um, and hopefully paints a, a broader picture of, of how we do worship here at Crosspoint as it pertains to music. Um, I'm also going to be attempting to tie in where applicable some of the core values that I've developed for this um, ministry. A while back, I was making plans for our musician development program, something we affectionately refer to as coconuts. No one sure why, myself included, but that's what it's called. And so as I was doing this, I was encouraged to come up with these core values, and so I somewhat grudgingly set to the task and realized I actually really enjoyed it. There's something really helpful about articulating these things, not that I was coming up with things, but I was just putting down on paper what we do every week. And so I was able to share that with the staff and able to share that with the band and able to share that with new people coming into the program that are going to lead worship here or play in the band. And it seemed like a great foundation to start from. So I'm going to go ahead and share those with you guys now. Hopefully it's helpful, helpful for you to know. Um, and they are as follows. We sing truth. That is, everything we sing is firmly rooted in the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We sing beauty. If the gospel is the content, then beauty is the form or how the gospel is presented. We sing excellently. This is the more practical side of beauty. If you want to look at, look at it like that, there's the um, you know, call for skilled musicians. That's um, why we show for practice on time, etc. And then the last three are more self-explanatory. We sing passionately and authentically. We sing together and we sing evangelistically. I... Um, created this little diagram for your enjoyment. I spent a long time on this. I asked myself if Lisa Frank were to create a diagram based on my core values, what would it look like? And so there's something about these colors that just exudes 1987 to me. Um, and I like looking at it. So Jamie's actually the one that framed it in this way. If you've talked to Jamie for any length of time, he'll somehow, some way, include triangles into the conversation. And so, um, so I've done the same thing here. And so we have we have the truth, we have the beauty, we have excellence, and another way of looking at those is right thinking, right feeling, right doing, sort of that head, heart, and hands language all working together. And I like it because it kind of connotes this balance to those things um, and helps keep me accountable in the way. Not that I do all these things perfectly, I don't think any church does, 
but, um, but that I strive to. We've all been to churches, I have, where they might be, you know, knocking out of the park with the beauty and the excellent thing. It's an amazing band, but what they're singing maybe is a little off, maybe theologically light or maybe just wrong altogether. And then I've been to places that nail the truth aspect, but maybe the right doing or the excellent part is maybe a little bit off. They've just said, like, anyone that's ever sung or played an instrument or thought about it, come on stage and we're going to see what happens. And so hopefully this is a way of monitoring that. And then on this right side here, we have the um, personal, communal, and missional aspects of worship and how those are played out. And so most of these can be seen, I think, in Colossians 3.16, and we're going to attempt to tease some of those out with maybe the exception of the excellency piece, which I don't think is there, supported in other scripture, but not so much here. So um, with that being said, we're going to move on to the text itself. We're going to dig in like an archaeologist with a rock hammer and one of those little brushes and just see how much we can excavate. Um, surprisingly, there's a, there's a ton here. So before I get to that, a little bit of context leading into the verse. There's always something disorienting about jumping into a verse in the middle of a book. And so um, this is not meant to be a thorough unpacking of the book of Colossians in its entirety. It's a fantastic book. It's four chapters long. If you haven't read it, go and read it. It'll probably take you an hour to do so. But for our purposes here today, I'm just going to try to summarize where we're at. And so um, this is one of Paul's epistles, um, as a lot of the New Testament is, addressed to the church in, to the church in Colossae. And a great deal of the content of this letter is meant to address what a number of scholars and commentators refer to as the Colossian heresy, which sounds very sinister to say. It's like saying Voldemort or something, like this like nefarious ring to it. Um, but what that is, it's a little bit vague, what they pieced together based on Paul's letter and based on what was going on culturally, is that these worldly philosophies were being infused with the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, as elements of Gnosticism, an emphasis on attaining some special esoteric knowledge and the pursuit of such, which led to a kind of elitism amongst the church. Suffice it to say, there was a drifting from the gospel, which ultimately was divisive, as it always is. And so Paul has something to say about that, and that's where we're going to start off at the beginning of Colossians 3. If you're there, you can follow along with me. It'll also be in the back on the screen. Here we go. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes... If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of the wrath of God, on the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its, with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So to briefly summarize, Paul presents this call for unity amongst the body. And he does so by appealing to the universality and the human experience. Right, we were all once dead in our trespasses. The old self, represented by this list of habits, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. We were once ruled by these, ruled by the flesh, but now we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. So there's a taking off of these things on the one hand, like filthy, stained garments, and a putting on of the new self, the pristine robes, and the righteousness of Christ. And in this way, we are one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of us all, one family, all sons and daughters of the living God. There is no chosen race or background, no preferred culture or class. There is only the people of God in Christ, and Christ is all, exclamation point, hallelujah, <laughs> amen. We are the bride of Christ, and we are to bear with one another, which is the same language that Paul uses to describe husband and wives bearing with one another or enduring one another, which doesn't sound super romantic, at least our idea of what is romantic, this idea of bearing with this person or enduring them. But beyond the bliss of the honeymoon, this is, a, this is forever. This is a forever kingdom. God is a forever God, and it gets messy. But, as Paul reminds us, the love of Christ binds everything together in perfect harmony. And I love that phrase there because it connotes something musical, which leads us into verse 316. Verse 316 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which with thankfulness in your hearts to God. A brief word on the translation for you linguistic and grammar nerds. Syntax, syntax plays a big role here. You might have noticed if you were following along in the ESV in front of you that it doesn't say through. It has comma, singing, psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs. The T in IV, which is, I guess, the true New International Version, unlike the untrue one that you guys must have before, <laughs> apparently is a translation. Uh, and several other translations do say it in this way. So this is not meant to be sacrilegious, but I think the TNIV is a better translation in this instance, for the same points that Douglas J. Moo, it's his real name, identifies in his commentary on Colossians. He points out, one, it provides a better balance between the two clauses. Two, it deals seriously with the lack of an and before singing. And three, it matches the structure of the parallel verse in Ephesians 5.19, which says, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Over that reason, we'll be looking at the TNIV translation just for that verse specifically, if you want to debate it with me afterwards, that's fine. Just wait until I've had my nap, and then we can do that. Now, since we've cleared that up for now, hopefully, let's start dissecting this thing. The focus on this verse is on the worship, particularly through song of the collective body. That's us. And it gives some guidelines for what that should look like. So it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. That's where we'll start. So we sing truth, right? We Breathe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of what we preach and how we live and hence what we sing. If you've been here for any length of time, you've likely noticed, or maybe you haven't, maybe this is news to you, but we try to intentionally tie in what we sing with what's being preached. I think there's tremendous power in singing the word of God. There's this kind of idea of right thinking and right feeling as being inextricable. 
when I first started leading worship um, at the church in California, there was a song, and I don't even recall what the song was or what the lyric was exactly, but afterwards, someone from the congregation approached me about it, and I don't know if they were just curious or if they were testing me. Uh, at this point, I don't know their motivation, but they asked what this particular lyric meant, and I kind of hemmed and hawed and, and stumbled over myself as I tried to explain it, but ultimately realized I had no idea what it meant. Um, and so I, I went home a little perturbed by that thought that, um, that if anyone should know what we're singing about, it should be me as the worship leader. And so, um, so I can say that uh, at least I'm, I'm fairly confident that all the songs we sing I can account for, I can explain. And we live in somewhat of a weird time in this contemporary church where I grew up, and maybe you did as well, with a church that had hymnals. And this was a vetted book of songs approved of by the church uh, of their content and perhaps other things like people like to sing them. But nowadays we have, uh, it seems like our hymnal has like, um, become top 40 Christian radio. Not that all these songs are bad, but it's like this DJ says, these songs are acceptable to you, so we can use them. Um, so I think there's something problematic about that. All the same, I try to be accountable too when it comes to Jason and Jamie. And if there's something that seems weird to me, I run it by them. Like, what do you guys think about this? And we talk about it. Um, and if you guys ever have any questions about what we're singing about, I will try my best to answer it. I think I could account for what we sing well, um, and I try whenever possible to introduce these songs um, without giving a mini-sermon each time on what an Ebenezer is, which we sang, which, by the way, is a monument of stones erected in remembrance of God. Yeah, you guys know, so that's it. Um, but I love that if you come here, and if you stay just for the first two songs this morning, then you heard the gospel. I think there's something really amazing about that. I love when we sing songs like How Great Thou Art, which I'm just going to read some of the lyrics to now. We have this laid out in front of us, this creation, fall, restoration, creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative laid out in these verses. It starts with, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the, word, the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Right? God of creation. And when I think, in verse 3 it says, I think of God. When I think of God as son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. It was a fall. Sin has separated us from God. Jesus comes and pays the price for our sin, thus redeeming us as a people. And then verse 4, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, I feel like I, I got to sing it. If it's awkward, then I'm sorry, but it says, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow with humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Right? That's a, that's a triumphant conclusion to this, the ultimate restoration. And if you sung that, and if you heard that, then you sung and you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe, theoretically, you get saved singing a song like that. I think that's really cool. And we do this all the time here at this church, by the way. Not just in that song. If you've sung, Fix My Eyes, then you've sung Hebrews 12. If you've sung mediator, there is one God, there is one mediator, then you've sung 1 Timothy 2.5. If you've sung Psalm 145, then you've sung Psalm 145, because it's basically <laughs> the text of that verse. I think that's awesome that we're singing the word of God. 
Second imperative, which is actually part of the first, it says, the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. The word of Christ, as Mu puts it, should, be, should not be superficial or passing, but it should be a deep and penetrating contemplation that enables the message to have transforming power in the community. Right? We sing beauty. A great deal of thought and contribution from a lot of different people go into planning the service each week. I'm always asking my band, what do they think about doing the song this way? Rearranging it, do we strip it down? Do we speed it up? What is going to drive home this point? Do we repeat this verse? Because that's really what we're trying to talk about. We have these conversations and staff as well. Form reinforces content, right? If beauty is the form, then truth is the content. And the truth is beautiful in and of itself, but I have to believe that how it's delivered matters. Just from my list of core values, I wrote, the relationship between form and content can be applied to any form of artistic expression, but in our context, we see it on display in creative song arrangements or in the poetic nature of the lyrics we're singing or going beyond the music, the stage and lighting designs, visual media, and so on. Through all the various aspects of beauty, we strive to create an immersive, provocative, and resonant experience. Something that I think exemplifies this well. If you guys were with us at our Good Friday service a couple years ago, you would have come into this auditorium and noticed that it was significantly darker than it usually is. You would have seen red lights splashed on the walls. And when the band took the stage, we were singing these hymns, but sort of truncated versions of them. When we sang, for instance, in Christ Alone, we sang, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain the kick drum going like a heartbeat that fades out, this idea of lingering in this space of darkness, the darkest night that ever was is what Jamie preached on. And then Sunday morning, we come back and we start up with that verse, but then there's this explosion of light, uh, confetti comes down, there's no confetti, but uh, we had this explosion of light, and, and you know, our triumphant risen saviors who were worshiping, and I, I still think about that, that contrast, that, that resonates with me. I'd heard those songs before, I'd played them before, but there was something about doing it in that way where, I, I don't know, it planted the seed in my heart, and uh, I heard it from other people as well that that experience was transformative in that way, which is what we strive for, to do, do things like that. Third imperative, moving on in the verse, it says, let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. There's an emphasis here on one another, right? We sing together, not praising God in isolation, which is totally fine. We can praise God wherever, as we said before, worship doesn't stop here. But there's something indispensable about coming together as the bride of Christ to worship with one another. There's something special and particularly edifying about encouraging one another through these songs, teaching one another, urging one another on in earnest, which is what it means to admonish. I was reminded of that this morning as I was singing out there with you guys, uh, barely able to contain myself from crying, that, that I'm nothing without you we're singing this to each other, and I'm like, yeah, uh, that I need you? Yes, and amen. I need you. I can't do this on my own. I confess that I forget this uh, often. As a worship leader, there's always this tension about the things that I think I want to accomplish and the things that God actually wants to accomplish through one of our services. I think Bob Coughlin in his book, Worship Matters, really articulates this well. 
I love this quote. He says, what I want from a gathering is often different from what God wants. I want everything to go smoothly. All the musicians to show up on time, the bass player and drummer to be in sync, the new song to blow everyone away, and people to tell me what a great job I did. It's absolutely true. God wants to remind a single mom that he hasn't deserted her even though her husband has. He wants to free people from legalism and condemnation. He wants to heal someone and comfort a couple who has just lost a child. And he wants to do it all by magnifying the greatness of the Savior in their eyes. He goes on to say, Every person walking in on Sunday morning has unique needs, specific sins he or she is battling, blind spots, and a tendency to forget the gospel. We have the awesome privilege of pointing each other to the greatness, goodness, and grace of Jesus Christ. I'm not just leading songs, I have to remind myself, I am leading people, so I repent of that now, I repent of that often. But the cool thing is, it's not just me, like it's not totally dependent on me to do that, it's dependent on the Holy Spirit, but also you guys play a significant role in that. The teaching and admonishing, which is what we normally think of as as for the leaders or the elders, you guys are doing that when you're singing the gospel which I think is amazing. Let's look at the, the second half of this, the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs part. I was honestly hoping for some robust unpacking of what these categories were, and I, cause I'd always wondered, like, what, what does Paul mean when he's talking about that? But the passage doesn't really go into specifics here, and even the commentators don't provide a great deal in this regard. There's some general agreement amongst the scholars, and I think F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary puts it this way, and it seems to be the consensus, that the Psalms are likely those drawn from the Old Testament Psalter, which has provided a chief vehicle of praise from primitive times. The hymns are likely Christian canticles, some of which are produced in whole or in part in the New Testament text. And the spiritual songs are likely unpremeditated, that's a weird way to put it, unplanned words sung in the Spirit, voicing holy aspirations. So even though it doesn't give clear detail about what these are, I think maybe as I was kind of sitting with it, that that's, that was the intention, that there isn't some prescribed way that we come together and worship God through song, which I'm grateful for as someone that likes to experiment and try different things. And one of the things that stands out to me is the variety of worship through song. There is this smorgasbord of musical expression, this endless array of colors to choose from. You have the old, the contemporary, and then the spontaneous And it's almost like Paul is saying, as long as the message being proclaimed is that Christ is all, then it's all good, (laughs) whatever you want to do. Lastly, we move to the the last part of this verse. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right, we sing authentically and passionately. Or, as John Wesley puts it in his Rules for Methodist Singers, sing lustily and with good courage. I love the way <laughs> that's worded. He goes on to say, have an eye on God. In every word you sing, aim at pleasing him more than any other creature. Just a, a, a caveat. It's, it's difficult me, for me to imagine what it looked like for John Wesley to sing lustily. Um, when I think of that, it, it, it's, every picture I've seen of him is like this, right? Like that's how he smiles. doesn't strike you as a particularly exuberant dude, but it appears that John Wesley 
is all for getting down in the name of the Lord. And so that's what we do here. Um, we sing authentically and we sing passionately. As always, God is most concerned with the heart. So there is, make no mistake, this communal aspect to our worship, but there's also something intensely personal about it. It's through our worship of the living God, we can speak openly to him. Jesus has afforded us that. To recapitulate this idea of the head and the heart, as I grow personally in understanding of God and Christ, of my sinfulness, of his holiness, and his sacrifice for me, I want to praise him all the more. We see that in the Psalms all the time. It's David or whoever wrote it, it's their theology of God bursting forth in doxological praise. And I don't want to prescribe some way that this should look, because I don't, it probably looks different for everyone, but that it should be happening in some way, whether you guys are raising your hands or whether you're falling on your knees or whether you're crying, barely able to sing these songs. But I ask the question, are you moved when we sing these songs? Are you moved by lyrics like, was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Or another one we sing often. Had his touch, my sleeping spirit was awakened. On my darkened heart, the light of Christ was shown. Called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Heaven citizen by grace and grace alone. Or another one we sing often. Rejoice. When you cry to him, he hears your voice. He will wipe away your tears. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. He will help you sing. And lastly, one of my favorites. that I have to sing these. They're not meant to be recited. They're meant to be sung. From man can it be. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's mournful night. Thine eye diffused quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeon flamed in light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I awoke and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I awoke. Went forth and followed thee. Something about singing that, every single time I sing it, I've probably sung it more than a hundred times, never fails to remind me um, of the wretch that I am, uh, of the darkness that I lived in, and of this marvelous Savior that we have that would enter into my mess and bring me into his marvelous light. That's what I'm reminded of when we sing that together. Application coming out of this is simple. It's sing. And ask the question, if you don't sing, why don't you sing? A few lists of possible reasons, some of which used to inhibit me from singing. Maybe you think it's not your gifting. Um, although the love of Christ binds us all in perfect harmony, so it doesn't really matter. Maybe some of you don't like the songs we're singing. Maybe you feel embarrassed singing in front of other people. Maybe it doesn't jive with your notions of what's masculine. Maybe what we're singing doesn't resonate with you. You're not sure what the words are about. 
ask the question, seriously wrestle with that. Well, what inhibits you? So I'd say most of those reasons, frankly, are not valid, <laughs> if I can be honest. I think in light of this verse, it's clear that it's, it's not entirely for us. Primarily, it's for God. Secondarily, it's for the edification of the body, but it is also for you. And it's what saved people do. Saved people come together and they sing. And we're reminded of the love of Christ. And we're encouraged to go on. Lastly, maybe you don't sing because you don't know this God. And if that's the, thing, the case, the invitation would also be the same, to come and join the song of salvation that has been going on forever. To sing with the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory.